Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankowski. Coming up, the recent Connecticut Forum conversation about race and racism was briefly disrupted by an activist protesting the lack of a Black Lives Matter representative on the stage. We'll meet her, but first. On the same night, December 3rd, I moderated a conversation and debate at Connecticut College in New London on free speech on college campuses, specifically speech surrounding issues of race. The panelists were Jelani Cobb, UConn professor and New Yorker staff writer, and Connor Frearsdorf, staff writer for The Atlantic. They'd been having a back and forth online covering the issue from very different perspectives. In a New Yorker article titled Race and the Free Speech Diversion, Cobb writes, The freedom to offend the powerful is not equivalent to the freedom to bully the relatively disempowered. The Enlightenment principles that undergird free speech also prescribe that the natural limits of one's liberty lie at the precise point at which it begins to impose upon the liberty of another. Connor Friedersdorf responded in an Atlantic article called Free Speech is No Diversion by defending his stance and saying he's not in fact using free speech to divert the topic of racism. He wrote, The impulse to declare the First Amendment null and void when it interferes with punishing racist, hurtful speech may seem in the moment as though it shows compassion toward marginalized groups, solving their anger and pain, but it does so at their ultimate expense, and I'm not even convinced that the immediate anger and pain would be less. Before our conversation, each panelist gave a prepared speech to argue his point. Now, you can hear those at our website, wnpr.org. We'll pick it up at the beginning of our moderated conversation, which took place in front of a packed audience full of students, faculty, and community members. I asked Friedersdorf about how being a white male affects his reporting on issues of free speech and race. A lot of commenters about what happened at Yale who watched the video that was put on screen uh, were very upset that this uh, young black woman at Yale was screaming at her professor and was using profanity. Um, to me, that, doesn't, that didn't bother me at all. I didn't write about uh, you know, I didn't criticize her for uh, being upset. Um, I did criticize the content of her ideas, uh, not her tone. Um, that's the line that, that I try to walk. I try to focus on the content of ideas and not the tone. And my objection in that case was um, the idea that this person should apologize or have to step down from his position uh, instead of there being some room for disagreement among people who hold opposing views and both really believe them. I would also say, though, that while it's certainly not my place uh, to, to tell anyone how they feel, whether they're uh, someone of a different race, someone from a different experience, I can't interpret people's feelings. There is, however, there are arguments being put forth by people other than me, by people uh, who don't have white skin, who are certainly challenging the way that students on some campuses are reacting to what's going on around them. Uh, I don't know if I agree with them or not, but I certainly think that they're worth looking at. And I think it's evasive, ultimately, to look at the color of the person's skin who's making them and to say, well, you can't make that, so we're not going to engage it. You know, in the New York Times, Randall 
Kennedy, one of the black professors at Harvard who had tape put over his portrait, he wrote, racism and its kindred pathologies are already big foes. There's no sustained payoff in exaggerating their presence, thus making them more formidable than they actually are. Disturbing, too, is a related tendency to indulge in self-diminishment by displaying an excessive vulnerability to perceived and actual slights and insults. Some activists seem to have learned that invoking the rhetoric of trauma is an effective way of hooking into the conscience of solicitous authorities. Perhaps it is useful for purposes of eliciting certain short-term gains. In the long run, though, reformers harm themselves by nurturing an inflated sense of victimization. I've never argued that people are nurturing an inflated sense of victimization. I don't know if they are or not. Uh, I think probably it differs from campus to campus, from individual to individual. Um, I do look at students, though, who, in the aftermath of that Yale incident, said that they were not able to sleep and they were not able to eat or attend class because of the email that professors sent. My reaction isn't to tell them, my reaction to that isn't to tell them you're wrong to have that emotional reaction. Uh, it is to say it seems like that reaction is damaging to you and uh, making you unhappy. And if there is a way that you can learn to react differently, it will be to your benefit and it will help fight these problems. And resilience is a skill worth trying to cultivate. I'm in favor of free speech. I'm a big fan of free speech. I'm going to be very clear. Um, I'm a bigger fan of free listening. And what I mean by that is the idea that if you have not had this experience, I disagree with what Randall Kennedy is saying. But I also know that Randall Kennedy is someone who has had to navigate race in this society. This is a disagreement among peers. It is not a disagreement between me and someone who has no idea what this is like or who has a secondhand experience. And it's this kind of presumptuous, presumptuousness that leads us down kind of blind alleys. Um, and one of the things I find that's kind of notable, and the way this plays into free speech is this. Uh, here's a, a kind of interesting little footnote to Griffith, D.W. Griffith's career. So he released Birth of a Nation in 1915, uh, and you know, he saw this huge response to this film, and that the Klan was reinvigorated, and all these things happened, and it was kind of jeopardy for black people's lives. And the following year, he released a film called Intolerance. And uh, historians have misunderstood intolerance. Uh, and it's four vignettes about people who, about circumstances in which uh, a person's intolerance of another person leads to violence and victimization. And a kind of liberal bent has led people to, to suspect that he made this film as a kind of recompense for the damage he had done with Birth of a Nation. That's actually not true. In, in the making the film and titling it Intolerance, he was directing his criticism at those who had a problem with birth of a nation. So while people were talking about their lives and the fact that there are people who are now more likely to kill us, he was saying, yeah, but you're being intolerant of my perspective. And I think that this is kind of the extreme example. Let me be very, also very clear. I'm not saying that Connor thinks like D.W. Griffith. That is not. <laughs> Connor, has written some very, Connor has written some very important work, uh, particularly his uh, writing about uh, Chicago and the Laquan McDonald uh, situation. I would encourage you to read. Um, but I, I am saying that this kind of logical fallacy has continued in kind of successive generations in which this argument has been played out. And we find ourselves arguing about one thing and in so doing completely blind to the implications of such a much bigger and more um, 
and in, in many instances, deadly concern. And the last thing, well, last, I keep saying this, one final point. <laughs> for now. One final point for now is that one of the things that amazes me most is that in 2015, the site of the primary outrage about free speech and the threats to free speech is marginalized students or students from particularly historically marginalized groups on college campuses who are on college campuses in such small numbers that it is on majority white campuses in such small numbers that it in itself is a shame. But beyond that, it's stunning to me that we could have this much energy devoted to the idea of students on college campuses while the biggest threat to free speech is the national surveillance infrastructure. No one can say anything without fear of, of there being consequences. You can't email or tweet or text or uh, any kind of electronic communication or talk on your phone without the government knowing what you're saying and that having a chilling effect on people's ability to speak their minds. That is where the primary threat to free speech in America is, it exists right now, not the allegedly hypersensitive students of color and women on college campuses. You, you use the term, though, free listening. You're an advocate of free listening. What does that mean, and how do we get to that? Because I think that's one of the, the issues here, right? There's not... If there are, are, are chilling effects on any type of speech, many would say, then, then you don't have the ability for people to, to listen, to learn from one another, to learn from someone who's different. And isn't time on a college campus exactly the time when you're supposed to do that? Figure out how stuff works. Figure out how to talk to people who don't look like you. I mean, that's absolutely true. But it's also like we have a conversation where we're saying that students were terrified of saying the wrong thing. I'm sympathetic. I also know that there are students who are terrified of being raped. I know the students were terrified of being, uh, as one student uh, um, had, after the Paris attacks, a student on our campus had uh, an anti-Muslim slur put on his door and then was in fear of his own physical safety. And so I recognize this, and I'm sympathetic to it. I also recognize that there is another issue here, and that in the kind of self-absorption that we can say, oh, well, someone may be upset that I said something offensive, there are people who are dealing with other issues that are very much more tangible and realities and threats that are very much more, um, have much broader social implications. And I think we should be mindful of these things. That's what I meant by free listening. However, listening, I think, is what uh, is missing in this equation. We get to understand other people's experiences by saying, oh, this is what it's like uh, to be a Muslim in a period in which people are kind of hysterical, have this anti-Muslim hysteria. Uh, this is what it is like to be an undocumented person while there is a presidential candidate who's calling your entire ethnicity rapists. Like, what does that feel like? And I think that's where we get to the ed actual education. Connor? Yeah, there, there are a few things I want to inject about a bunch of stuff that's been said. Um, one, just to underscore the point about surveillance and to connect it with the issues that we're talking about tonight, one of the... Um, terrible instances of surveillance that I've written about is um, the, the Muslim student groups in New York City right. and the New York area where NYPD officials were sent undercover to infiltrate their student mm -hmm. groups. They went on a river rafting trip mm -hmm. at one point uh, with them and sat in on their meetings. And the really pernicious and terrible effect this had on uh, the ability of these people, you know, it, it sowed suspicion within the community, like who is the person that's undercover among us. It terrified the parents of these students, and it really was only because they were Muslim. There was no 
suspicion that any one individual uh, was doing anything wrong. It, it was really one of the more egregious uh, post-9-11 abuses. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I agree with this notion that um, a, a person can't know about the experiences uh, th- that they haven't had. Uh, I don't know what it is to be uh, a, a black student on an American college campus today. Uh, I, I've never experienced it, and I try very hard not to presume uh, anything that's beyond my experience. Um, but, but a lot of what I write isn't working on presumption. I go to colleges, I walk around UCLA, and I talk to people. I talk to uh, alumni of UCLA, and then I write about it. The same thing at Yale. Um, everything that I've said tonight, I've talked to students of color at Yale who completely agree with it and who completely disagree with it, and white students who completely agree and completely disagree. Um, I think as journalists, we're often in the position of talking to people who have had radically different experiences than we have and trying to relate them. And it's what I've done in my writing on free speech on college campuses. It's what I did when I wrote about the Muslim college students who had, you know, I can't imagine what the experience would be like of having your group infiltrated. I still tried to listen and describe that perspective. Uh, And and I don't think there's anything objectionable about that. How do we set a line for speech on a college campus, how do we know what line we can walk up to with something that we might say, something we might do, something we might think is satire? And how is that, how is that established in your mind? I'll ask you first quickly, Jelani, and then I'd like to hear from Connor on that. So here's, here's where um, I think I hold the opinion that people would probably be surprised that I would hold. I'm not in favor of establishing that line. I'm in favor of educating people and letting them establish the line for themselves. To say that, you know, do you understand that when you use, you know, the name of the Washington football team, you were insulting my ancestry and my community and so on? Now, if you choose to still use that name, I just want you to understand that what you're doing. I'm not in a position of telling you that you can't do it. I simply want you to be clear in what you're engaging. If that results in stigma, if that results in people thinking poorly of you, you know, then, then so be it. And finally, um, I'm a pragmatist. I tell uh, this story to students as a bit of hard-won wisdom in my own life. The first time I was ever called nigger was when I was 13 years old. I was shocked. It was like this thing that my parents told me, then all of a sudden it happened. And it was like, wow, they were telling the truth. Like this thing exists in the world. Um, the second time I was called nigger, uh, interestingly enough, I've been called three times in my life, always by passing cars, people in cars passing. Um, I don't know what that's about. Um, but the second time, uh, the second time uh, I was in my 20s and I was enraged. Um, and the third time that this happened, um, I burst out laughing. And the reason was I thought it was absurd that someone actually thought that they could diminish me. It was like that word existed during slavery, but black people survived slavery. That word existed in the post-Reconstruction period, but black people survived the post-Reconstruction period. People used that word as a means to bolster Jim Crow, but Jim Crow was killed. And that in each instance in which people have attempted to dehumanize and to use this word as a stand-in for a broader socioeconomic state of affairs, people have found the reserve and the will and the ingenuity and the creativity and the spiritual fortitude to forge a way forward. And so I understood that I had the wind at my back, and this was a kind of weak last gasp um, of a dying sentiment. 
but it takes a long time to get to that place. I'm less interested in policing other people's speech than I am in building stronger people who are not as easily derailed by the attempts to kind of keep you in a marginal position. Uh, we went back and forth in our initial remarks about stigma. And the line that I draw in my mind, because uh, it, to me, bigotry is the thing that should be stigmatized, not being well-intentioned and accidentally saying the wrong word or uh, talking about something in a way that someone thinks is insensitive or that someone labels a microaggression. It's not that I think that those things can't be responded to, uh, even angrily, and say, you know, I think that that's really wrong, or this is the way it made me feel, et cetera, et cetera. But I think that stigma should, reser- should be reserved for people who are being hateful. Uh, and that's when it's most useful and least damaging. Um, because to me, stigma on college campuses right now, um, it's being overused in a way that is having the most harmful effect on the left-of-center activist communities where the norms have the most power. Um, Students in fraternities and the campus Young Republicans aren't nearly as affected by it because they aren't in communities uh, that believe they ought to be subject to these rules, right? Um, So, yeah, I I say... uh, Bigotry and yeah. stigma should go together. And I guess to to pick up on that, the you told a story, Jelani, of, of the th- these three experiences in your life, one in which you're shocked, one in which you're outraged, and one in which you laugh. Mm-hmm. You, the, the older Jelani laughs. The, mm-hmm. the the man who understands everything. It's the twenty year old, the one who's close to the college age, who is who is outraged. And I think part of what Connor's getting at is that in that outrage that is happening, there is. Um, now, through social media, certainly, there are a lot of ways to to lash out quickly in an outraged way without that mm-hmm. scope of history that can damage, and maybe you'd, you'd walk it back if you were 30, 35, 40 years old, but, but, you, but you don't mm-hmm. when you're 18, 19, 20. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think that this is... So here's one thing. I think that part of this debate has been kind of reductio ad absurdum, which is that we found, like, the far-out examples where we say that someone has like an insanely kind of sensitive um, you know calibration for for racial slight uh, and so you know someone who is kind of wounded by the wind um, and you know that is the example that we kind of look at and say this is where we are but if we look at what's actually happening on college campuses we do see that there are actual situations circumstances of implicit bias you know, which are substantial. Um, and we see there are students who are, um, with kind of sickening frequency, experiencing, uh, you know, the swastika on the door, the Muslim student who's, like, uh, ridiculed and selected uh, and excluded. Uh, you know, myself, as a six-foot-three-inch black man who walks into environments and knows, like, that there's a certain level of intimidation that I can expect white people to have, just my mere presence. Uh, and so those things are actually real, And one of the things that I found to be very disturbing uh, about this is that when uh, the article that uh, Lukinoff and Haight wrote in The Atlantic about the coddling of the American mind, uh, they raised all these examples and they kind of did this psychoanalytic explication of what was wrong with these students and why they were super sensitive and so on. Nowhere in there did they actually talk about actual racism and sexism these students experienced. 
Uh, and there's a terrible history of people who were in a majority position deeming people who were marginalized crazy um, you know, for their responses to their marginalization. Uh, and one of my favorite examples of this is that you know, during the 1850s, there was an actual diagnosable psychological disorder called draptomania. Some of you may be familiar with it. Draptomania was the mental illness that caused Negroes who were enslaved to irrationally run away. And so what I mean by that is, I mean, I hope that I would have draptomania, that I would have been one of those people who was like, you know, we don't understand. It's incurable. Like, <laughs> this, this dude just won't stick around. Um, but, but in the bigger sense, I think that this line about sensitivities, um, it, it tends to, to err on the side of the powerful. And that's what I think that we should be mindful of in having this conversation. And I say that even as someone who does say the only way that you can reasonably respond to this is to develop, to cultivate a kind of stronger inner core such that you cannot not be easily knocked off balance by these things because they will be a continual part of your life. That's The New Yorker's Jelani Cobb and The Atlantic's Connor Friedersdorf speaking at a panel presentation taped at Connecticut College earlier this month. We'll have more after this break. This is Where We Live. This is Where We Live. I'm John Dankosky. Today we're listening back to a conversation that took place earlier this month at Connecticut College. I was the moderator, and our panelists were Jelani Cobb, UConn professor and writer for The New Yorker, and Connor Friedersdorf from The Atlantic. The topic was free speech and issues of race on college campuses. We got a question from a first-year student at Conn College. If you said, like, okay, like, we're not going to use these words, we're not going to use like this because it has racial implications, it's like... You're setting a tone, and like people might not agree with it, but like from there you can be like, okay, this is why we do this, so it prevents this thing from happening. Like it prevents like these people from feeling this way. Like yeah, you're like kind of like saying like you know like this like you're kind of like you know diluting like the like the person's sense of like free speech and um, and that, but like I don't know, you bring everyone up to like an equal like like basically a playing field, like saying like it's what he just he's talking about community standards. Yeah. He's talking about creating a community standard. That's not a law that's, that is an agreed-upon code of conduct. I think that, um, one, for what I was saying, what my basic contention is in all of this is that the freedom to offend the powerful is not the same as the freedom to bully the marginalized. Um, and that's what my, my essential argument boiled all the way down is. I don't know that administrators at universities should be in charge of setting that standard. Ideally, I think that those standards would come about as they tend to among students themselves. Um, and I think that, that as an idealist, as an idealist, I think that that will happen at some point. And I think that maybe this conversation, the conversations that people are having, the conversations that people are being forced to have on college campuses now are, is expediting that process in some way. Yik Yak is very controversial, right? Um, and it's, it's a terrible, I mean, I go on it and I'm shocked by some of it. Um, of course, the racist things also just, um, you know, the sadness of some students talking about, I haven't told anyone that I'm thinking about suicide I saw once, you know. The only silver lining to having speech like that on Yik Yak is that 
these people are so marginalized that they've been pushed into a form where they will only say these things anonymously because they know their character would suffer so much by the community outrage if they were ever to say them to people's faces. Uh, and I'm glad that they're marginalized in that way uh, and, and that they don't dare uh, speak these things to people's faces because they know that they would be pariahs on campus. But, I mean, I think this is kind of glib um, because... We had an incident on our campus, I'll talk about the University of Connecticut, we had an incident on our campus where there were obscene uh, threats made at uh, an African-American sorority and on Yik Yak, and this had actual tangible consequences. There were young women who were very fearful walking around campus because the anonymity in actual, actually enables in a certain way. So now they don't know who thinks like this. Is it a person who's in their class? Is it a person who lives in their dorm? Are they actually in physical jeopardy? And I don't think that, it, kind of, if this were a kind of anonymous commentary, you know, of the sort that we see on many, you know, blogs or comment sections and so on, that would be one thing. But it is connected to a broader complex of ideas and practices and policies. And so it's not simply uh, this person said something offensive is that they said something offensive. I'm the only one of my background that lives in my dorm or my building. Uh, I'm you know, from this particular community, which may or may not be economically marginalized, or any of these other kinds of things that relate to this just being one more kind of drop in a bigger deluge of concerns. And so I think that we have to look at it in, in saying that people are not sensitive for nothing. Um, it's, people are sensitive because it connects to something that is part of their own lived experience. I, I absolutely agree that they're not sensitive or nothing. I don't think I disagree with anything you just said about Yik Yak. The, the only thing that I would add, um, when I read Coddling of the American Mind, when I look at some of the people like the quote I read earlier, um, telling college students, uh, trying to tell them, respond to this in a way that's resilient, um, when I write about these issues, I have in mind that everyone who is protesting right now on campuses within four years is going to be someplace where there's no administration uh, to make demands about. Um, the community is going to have uh, views that are radically different all over the place. If they lived in my neighborhood in Venice, California, they have you know, um, mentally ill people walking down the street screaming obscenities all the time. Um, hostile coworkers, hostile... Uh, neighbors and apartments, um, and yik yak still in the outside world, unfortunately. Um, what's the right response to that? Uh, to me, part of that is preparation for a world where there's definitely not going to be a speech code, where there's definitely not going to be the community norms that uh, I hope everyone is able to enjoy soon on college campuses. And I don't see a ton of talk about that resilience. So one of the things that struck me about someplace like Yale as I've been covering it, when a white male student at Yale says that he feels disempowered because of something that happens, the first impulse uh, of the activist community of the campus left is to show him the extent of his power and privilege. That's fine. I don't object to that. But when any other student says that they feel disempowered, the immediate impulse is to validate whatever they said and I think, I understand it, but I think that there's a sense in which that does a disservice to everyone except these white male students who are being shown the ways that they're empowered. And I think especially at some place like Yale, I have a hard time with the idea of marginalized students at Yale if they graduate with a Yale diploma. Um, you know, marginalized compared to what? The, these are people with 
tremendous resources and power, which isn't to deny uh, the hardships that they face or diminish them in any way. It's just to say that they're very smart. They're very smart. They have connections to media all over the country. Uh, They can get their voices heard. They can have very powerful activism. And I'm not saying that this makes anything that they've gone through okay or less painful. Uh, I just want to remind them of this because it will help them to remember that they can put their voices out there and that if they feel, uh, if they're not aware of these things, because who's aware of these things when you first get to college, uh, I, to me, this context is helpful to them, not damaging. Very quickly. So that's like saying that President Obama, you shouldn't be humiliated by having to show your birth certificate to prove that you're a citizen because you got to be president in the first place. You know, I, I, I don't think I said that they shouldn't be humiliated. But that's not what I'm saying. Like, that's so beside the point. The point is that even if you are a person, it's actually more damning. You're saying that I'm a talented person, I have resources, I have you know, maybe a middle class or upper middle class family, and I can get to an elite institution, and I still have to grapple with the same concern. And so it heightens the response in some kind of ways, uh, and, and as opposed to in circumstances where you might anticipate encountering this. Now, I still think, like we keep kind of falling back to the same thing. Of course there's resilience. Resilience is crucial. We've been saying the same thing. I'm simply saying that telling someone to be resilient when you're a person who has experienced this is understood very differently, have very different implications than telling someone to be resilient when you're a person outside of that community and you've never experienced it. Because what it sounds like is invalidation. It's saying, oh, just toughen up. I I think it's very clear that uh, I wasn't saying that their experiences are invalid. I'm not saying that you do. I'm saying it sounds that way. Okay, well. Okay, we'll, we'll, and we'll, let's move on. We have a question here and we have a question in the back. Let's go here first. Uh, it's just how you talk about resilience. And I apologize for saying this, but historically, throughout the world, oppressed people, all they have is resilience. Resilience is not a state policy. That is what people do every day to survive when they're oppressed. So this recipe that you're kindly giving to us we're tired of drinking it. We drink it every day. I had a cup this morning, and many people here did. So this whole thing about students who are, cannot sleep, if they could just be more resilient, their mother was resilient, their grandmother was resilient, their ancestors who were slaves were resilient. Listen to the spirituals. Listen to the blues. It's kind of, and I don't like to use this language, but very offensive to hear someone telling people who've been historically resilient, and that's all they always have, is in their DNA, whether they like it or not, you need to be more resilient, toughen up. We've been doing that for more than 400 years. What have you been doing? That is the question. It's very problematic. And when you talk about this young woman at Yale not being able to get some sleep, what can you ask yourself? Why is it that she internalizes oppression? Mad people don't fall out of the sky. They're part of us. We are them. We create those people. This constant disconnect and disidentification, uh, like, look at you. I'm part of you. You are part of me. You need to take responsibility. Constantly putting the burden and using that word resilience. People are resilient. They have no other choice, but it's not a state policy. People are also citizens. And we're living in a so-called democracy that is supposed to grant us equal rights. So why is it that when it comes down to oppression, discrimination, social injustice, racism, the only recipe that you're offering now is resilience? My ancestors knew that. 
But now I'm not picking up cotton in a plantation. I don't have to be resilient. What are my rights here and people who look like me? So other than resilient, thank you very much. What is it that you have to offer? Connor? Um, I think that all, all of us have a responsibility to look at what we regard as the worst injustices, certainly including racial injustices, and to try and right them. Uh, I try to do that every week in my work with the topics that I choose to write about. Um, I, I dissent from the notion that telling people you are empowered in these ways is offensive, is condescending. I don't think it's so. Uh, I don't think it's the same as telling people your, your reactions to this are invalid. I don't think it's the same as telling people there aren't, in fact, problems. Um, I think it's merely telling people there are these terrible things that are going to keep going on. If I could change them, if I knew how to fix them and make them go away, I certainly would. Unfortunately, none of us have that power. And so in the face of that, what are we to do? Uh, I think part of what we're to do is to listen. I think part of what we're to do is to chip away at all the injustices that we can as we go along. I think also part of what we're to do is to try to make sure that everyone knows how intelligent, how capable, how powerful they are to speak out against these things and to react to them in a way that is going to uh, help them to be as healthy as they can and to fight as effectively as they can. Um, I don't think that this resilience thread that we've gotten on, and partly because of uh, the article in my magazine about college students and resilience, I don't think it's even specific to these issues about race on campus. As I said, that magazine article was pitched as a generational thing about all college students, certainly not just activist college students or college students who are protesting. I haven't spent time on every college campus in America. I don't know if that diagnosis is correct or not. But I don't think it's a special message for anyone to say, you're in a campus environment where we're here to arm you with knowledge, we're here to arm you with skills, we're here to arm you with everything that we can to go out in a world that's going to be a lot more hostile than this environment, and we want you to be aware of all the ways that you're strong. That's The Atlantic's Connor Friedersdorf and The New Yorker's Jelani Cobb. Thanks also to David Canton and Helder Mira of Connecticut College for their help. You can hear more at wnpr.org slash where we live. Coming up, the Moral Monday activist group interrupted a Connecticut Forum conversation on race earlier this month. We'll find out more about why. It's coming up next, where we live. This is where we live. I'm John Dankosky. Coming up tomorrow, ever wonder who designs all those traffic lights that you're constantly hitting on the way to work? We'll take a look at the art and science of traffic light programming. We'll hear from experts and engineers in Connecticut and Utah. We'll also find out how new smart signals are improving traffic flow in my hometown of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hope you can join us tomorrow.
Now, as you may know, I periodically moderate panel discussions at the Connecticut Forum in Hartford. These events are billed as no-holds-barred conversations on important news and cultural topics, and we do often get into some pretty deep conversation. Now, just before the debate about race and racism at the Forum earlier this month, which was moderated by NPR's Michelle Norris, a protester stood up, took out a bullhorn, and talked to the packed crowd at the Bushnell Theater. So we're here to represent those missing voices and to remind you that this conversation does not bring back the black lives lost to police brutality and does not bring prosperity into black communities. We're here to invite you to take the next step beyond conversation. Please move to action and show up for racial justice. The woman was ushered out into the lobby as Michelle Norris and other panelists called for her to be brought back to take part in the dialogue. That protester was Janae Woods. She's an activist and writer who is part of the Black Lives Matter movement and the Moral Monday movement. They've been staging regular protests on Mondays in Hartford, protests that have stopped traffic on the streets. She came into our studios to talk about that night's protest, which took place at the start of a conversation about the very topic they're trying to raise awareness about. Janae Woods, welcome to Where We Live. Thank you for having me. First of all, why don't you take us through that night at the Connecticut Forum, the conversation was about race and racism, and yes. there is a, a panel of people on stage ready to have that conversation, and there was a, a room full of people, thousands of people, ready to take part in that conversation, and you stood up and, and said what you said. Take me through why. I was there on behalf of Moral Monday, and we are a group of activists who are part of the Black Lives Matters movement, and we wanted to point out through disruption at that forum that there were voices and perspectives that we believed were missing from the stage that night that were really critical to having a nuanced, real conversation about the state of race and racism in the United States, in Connecticut, in the Hartford area specifically. And we also wanted the disruption to function as a call to action for the thousands of people in the audience who might think that their contribution to the movement was their presence there tonight. And we wanted to let people know that this is only one thing. This is a start. We hope that you take this conversation and move forward to action and that you don't regard this as the one and only thing that you can do. What voices were missing? Well, there were voices missing that represented people who are actually working in the Black Lives Matters movement, people who are out on the streets people who are protesting, people who are on social media sharing what's happening in real time, people who are affiliated with the different actions that are taking place around the region and the state with regards to Black Lives Matters. And also there was a lack of voices that represent um, people who deal with the intersections of race and racism and other kinds of oppression. For example, there were no voices representing um, the the trans community. Uh, For example, This year alone, black trans women have been disproportionately murdered, and that is a Black Lives Matter issue as well. I'm involved with the Connecticut Forum. I'm hosting one coming up later on. And um, because of what I do here, I believe that having dialogue and talking through things actually really does help. It, It helps to lead to good conclusions, maybe not quickly enough, but it can lead to good conclusions. One thing I've found as a professional person doing this is that it's hard to get all the voices on a stage. Like if you if you really want to have a conversation in which everyone is heard, if you put everyone who had kind of a dog in the fight on the stage, you'd have so many people on the stage and so few people in the audience, you wouldn't really have a conversation. 
I guess I'm wondering if you just talk about that notion, because it's something where I sit that I feel very clearly, but I understand that you're coming from a different place. I do not disagree with you in thinking uh, or believing that dialogue itself can lead to some good outcomes. In fact, for the past five years, I've traveled around the country helping people and communities organize dialogues to bring together people across different perspectives and different viewpoints to have conversations about critical, sensitive issues in their community, including racism. I do, however, think that we have reached a point where we need to couple dialogue with action. And we need to start moving forward and not just speaking about the problems and not just dissecting the problems, but we also need to start thinking more about being solutions-oriented and using the stories and the viewpoints that we come up with in these dialogues to find some common ground so that we can start coming up with people-based solutions to address some of the issues that we're facing. Well, what are some of the actions you, you were hoping people would would leave within their minds? I mean, you you want the people who are in the audience probably mostly as passive participants in that night's conversation. And as you quite rightly say, I think a lot of us think, well, we we are part of these conversations. We truly care about these issues. We're doing the right thing. But you want people to turn to some sort of action. Be specific. What action do you think? Yeah, not just to walk away having engaged in educational entertainment for the evening, which is what some people consider that particular forum on racism to be like, but instead to walk out thinking, well, what can I do to support the movement? What can I do to support the movement for the liberation of black people and people of color in this community? What are some organizations that I can join? How can I support people who are out in the streets protesting? How can I reach out to my local elected officials to let them know that this is an issue I care about? thinking about what can I do to disrupt institutionalized racism or systemic racism in the different systems in my community, for example, in our schools, in our medical system, in the way that we engage in policing of communities. Coming up with lots of action ideas around that, I think that would have been really helpful if the forum had presented some opportunities for people to then become actively engaged in doing rather than just talking about the issue and and thinking theoretically about where do we go from here, but offering some concrete next steps for people who really did want to become more catalyzed and become more fully absorbed into the work. And I want to talk more about the actual action that people can take in a moment. But before we get too far away from the conversation about conversation and how Mm -hmm. important that that can be, something that has been said about the Black Lives Matter movement, whether it's a disruption like this or perhaps disrupting a Bernie Sanders event or a Hillary Clinton event, is that... By doing that, you might lose people who would be allies, who truly believe, my goodness, I'm on the side of the angels here. I I want to work with you. I am part of this just as much as you are. I just have a different thing that I care about most. For instance, someone supporting Bernie Sanders would say, I want Bernie Sanders to be elected so that all these other things happen, is what they'd say. So how do you address that issue where, in some ways, this type of activity might put you at odds with people who could be really strong allies, but who might might now keep you at a distance in a way that probably wouldn't be helpful? Well, to people like that, I would say first, if you consider yourself to be a really strong ally, where were you before the disruption? Oftentimes people don't come out and say, oh, I would have supported you, but if only. And then I think we start to get into what we call respectability politics. I think that instead of criticizing the tactics of people who are engaging in these kinds of disruptions, ask the question, well, why are you disrupting? I think that is the more important question. Mm -hmm. And again, where were you before the disruption? And if presenting a few moments of 
inconvenience or raising a little bit of a ruckus at a political rally or by blocking an intersection is going to turn you against the movement so completely that you no longer would consider yourself to be an ally. Were you ever actually an ally to begin with? Mm-hmm. It, during that event at the at the forum, as we heard the the panelists, including the, the moderator, I think we're trying to engage with you at the time. Did you consider in that moment that you might indeed stay and Make a disruption, make it visible what you were trying to say, but then stay and be part of the conversation that was being had on stage? Well, the initial goal was not to go in and usurp a seat on the stage. That wasn't that wasn't the reason for, for the disruption itself. It was rather to deliver that message to the many participants there that there were, in fact, voices that were missing from that conversation. And they weren't necessarily my particular voice, but that there were voices missing. And as well, that the people in the audience should not consider this to be their one contribution. As for the panelists inviting me to engage, I will say, I don't know if you've ever had the experience of holding a, a bullhorn and speaking into it. It's hard to hear what else is going on. You can only hear yeah. your own voice. But I will say that I was also being fully I was fully prepared for security to walk me right out of the auditorium after the disruption, which is what they did. As I was on the outside, I got text messages from people who were inside the forum saying the panel wants you to come back. Yeah. And I, I was surprised because I thought, you know, security would walk us right out. We were waiting to speak with Bushnell staff about whether or not that was a real invitation to come back and engage with the panelists or to return to the audience. And I don't know if there was a disconnect between what the panelists wanted and what the Bushnell staff were able to relate to us, but an actual invitation to come back and engage with the panel in a meaningful way about the cause for the disruption was not something that was presented to us in a way that we could act on it in the moment. Mm -hmm. What do you see as the role of that kind of very active protest? It's not the only one in getting the message that you are carrying across of of actual physical disruption of traffic or an event or a space. I think there are many messages and many reasons. Well, first is awareness. Oftentimes, uh, people, uh, particularly people who carry some sort of privilege, are not always aware of these issues. It can be very easy to, well, just not know about the issues, uh, and maybe not even because you're actively tuning them out, but because they're not in the media that you're consuming. They're not being presented to you in stories that are, are making it to your ears. So it's about raising awareness and letting people know that all of this stuff you hear about that's happening on a national scale, it's happening right here, too, in the neighborhoods where you live, in the neighborhood that you drive through every day on your way to work, in the community where you live. So that's one thing. Another is also that oftentimes... People, when we talk about the burdens of oppression, people don't realize how disruptive to the lives of the people that are being oppressed it is until their own lives are interrupted and they don't pay attention. The voices are not able to be lifted. There's no rising of those voices to the top. Nobody's listening until a disruption is forced and those voices are put in the forefront very forcefully. Mm. Previous attempts to make change in America, like one recently, the Occupy Wall Street movement, it certainly did have some impact, but it also was was criticized in some way because it became, in many ways, about everything. There were so many things in which Wall Street, uh, Occupy Wall Street was about or for or against that it became a very diffuse message. And with all the injustice in the world, much of which has to do with racism— and I think over the course of the last couple of years, I think Americans woken up to the fact that there's a bedrock of racism that's at the bottom of almost everything else that is problematic in the country. 
But there's so many other things. Do we lose some of the message if it's about racism and it's about sexism and it's about ageism and it's about all of the things that do plague us as a society? Is it hard to get that message across? I think it can be difficult to get that message across if you're not clear about what the intersection is Mm -hmm. and why the intersection is important to people. And I think that one of the difficulties in getting that message across is you just sat across from me right here and very freely admitted that racism is the bedrock of many of these other forms of impress- uh, oppressions and injustice that are Absolutely happening in the United the tru- States. The truest thing I've learned in, 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 in my time, yes. <laughs> However, I don't know that a critical mass of Americans truly believe that yet. To a lot of people, racism is something that happened in the past, mm. um, or it is something that people do to each other. It is very difficult for some people to see how institutionalized racism has become in our country. And that is where much of the intersection with the other forms of injustice and oppression take place. Mm. Janae, thank you so much for joining me. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you, John. Janae Woods is an activist and writer who is part of the Moral Monday movement. To continue this conversation online, go to wnpr.org slash where we live. Our show is produced by Lydia Brown and Tucker Ives. Today's program was produced by our executive producer, Katie Talarski. Our technical producer is Kion Wolf. The digital editor is Heather Brandon. Our interns are Zachary Lasala and Amanda Gallagher with Stephanie Reef. You can continue our conversation on our website. It's wnpr.org slash where we live. I'm John Dankosky, and this is Where We Live.